You are listening to Fellowship Around the Table. All right, welcome to the weekly chat. It's week three. Enjoying these conversations with Scott Johnson, joining me again in the book of Job. We just ended last week talking about in chapter one that Satan wipes out all of Job's wealth, his business, his financial security, and all 10 of his children. Seven boys and three girls. Wow. Now, (laughs) where do we go from here, right? Well, you think it couldn't get any worse. Yeah. And it's about to get worse. Chapter two. Chapter two. And again, we're not very far into the book and all this stuff happens in the first two chapters. So in chapter two, as we talked about last time, Satan comes back to God. And they have a similar conversation. What you've been up to, God says to Satan, and Satan says, I've just been roaming around the earth checking everything out. God says, well, have you considered my servant Job, blameless, upright, fears God, shuns evil. Mm -hmm. There's no one like him in all the earth, identical to what he says in chapter one. And then he adds, and he maintains his integrity, which means his belief in God. We'll explain that later. Even though you incited me to ruin him without cause. And Satan, like we said last time, responds with, that's right. Perfect. <laughs> he responds with, all you let me do was touch his stuff. Of mm. course, he still worships you. Let me mess with his body, and then let's see what happens. Mm. And God gives him permission, says, okay, very well, you can do that, but you must spare his life. So Satan goes out and afflicts Job with boils, these horrible sort of oozing sores And it literally says from the sole of his foot to the crown or the top of his head. But here's the interesting thing. In chapter two, sort of we only, I'm using air quotes here, we only or merely read about the boils as if that's not bad enough. Later in the book, and these references are sprinkled throughout the book, we read that he had blackened, scab-ridden, festering, worm-infested skin. Mm. He had bone-deep gnawing pain all the time. He Mm. couldn't sleep. He was emaciated. The text says his bones were visible outside of his body. And to top it all off, as a social faux pas, he has bad breath. Now, (laughs) insult to injury. I'm I'm telling you, Heath, for years, I would just smile when I read that. And I still do. But that bad breath comment is going to turn out to be really significant to understanding more about his wife, which we'll get to later on. Oh, man. So it's not just the boils, and I'm using just in quotes. It's not merely the boils. It's every aspect of his body is is afflicted with pain and oozing and discomfort, and it's just terrible. Mm. Okay. So by any standards, as we get to chapter two and we see this, we would say Job has lost everything. I, I completely agree with that. I, I, I'll say he doesn't lose his faith. Yep. He simply will not give it up. And, and maintains his integrity. And you're going to explain that later, but that's, that's what we see there. Yep. And he has not lost his wife. He's not lost his wife. Okay. And of course, she's infamous mm-hmm. in circles of Judaism and Christianity because of what she said. What she says. But before we get to that, is there anything else that happens to Job? I mean, that's enough, right? Is there anything else? You would think that would be enough, but here's that there is. Okay. And it's really significant. So 
Job describes later on how he was among the most respected citizens in the region where he lived. And when he would come into the city square, the city gate is what they called it, he was he was just held in extremely high regard. Mm. Now, after he's lost everything, and Satan doesn't do this directly, he doesn't have to. So after, after Job loses all of his business, all of his financial security, his wealth, all of his children, and then he's afflicted bone deep, almost to the point of death with health problems, he is ostracized by the entire community. And he talks about how he is an outcast. He's living basically in the city dump. He's living in the ashes, which is basically the city dump. He's living where people were exiled. They were booted out of the city if they were nuts. Mm. And so if they were crazy, they were they were made to live over there. This is where Job's living. He's now. outside the camp. <laughs> he's outside the camp, well outside, and he knows it. And he's also taunted and mocked. He's spit on. He's punched. He's kicked. Everything you can imagine. So... Not only does he lose all of his stuff and his kids, not only does he lose all of his health, but he's gone from the top of the heap mm. to, I would say, below the bottom of the heap. I mean, I remember I remember there was a, a funny thing about British military officer reviews, and one of them wrote, this officer has reached rock bottom and started to dig. <laughs> so that sort of describes Job, although he didn't dig himself, but he's reached rock bottom and then he's gone below that. Below that. Because he has... No one in the community that he would have described as a friend, no one is standing by him. He is a man without honor, without dignity, and he is utterly alone, except for his wife. Okay. There's his wife. And There's his wife. very famous words. Yes. I can remember them. Yep. After all of this, she presumably looks at him and says, why don't you curse God and die. <laughs> I love the way you said that because, so Heath, for 20 years, okay. when I read this book, just because I thought this dialogue was so interesting, in my mind's eye, I pictured the Wicked Witch of the West from The Wizard of Oz, <laughs> okay. complete with the hat and, and the wart on the nose, Yeah, right? And, yeah. and probably the green face and everything. So I pictured the Wicked Witch saying with a bony finger and mm, a snarling. De definitely a finger point. Definitely right? a finger point. That's right. <laughs> and a snarling look on her face saying, curse God and die. Yeah. Today, I understand her completely differently. Oh. Now, because it takes a while to unfold that, we'll have to come back to that. But let me just say this. For all the years that I read the book until the first class I taught, even going into that first class in 2013, I still thought this. And I thought she was the worst wife in the history of wifery or wifedom, <laughs> however you want to call it. I thought she set the bar at the worst, like she pegged the meter on being the worst wife. Today, I understand her completely differently, including the infamous statement, curse God and die. That took me a long time to sort of break down and reverse engineer, so to speak. And it does not mean at all what we think it means when we first read it. But that's that's probably the, the subject of Job's wife, and I like to call her Mrs. Job. Mm. She has become dear to me, mm -hmm. as has Job, as have his friends, for reasons that maybe we can get into. But explaining her takes a little while by itself. It does. But this is probably one of the more misunderstood yes. phrases out of the text. Not only that, but I would say 
I would say Mrs. Job, as best I can tell, is the most unfairly maligned person in all the scriptures. Wow. Because most of the people that we hold in utter disregard deserve it. (laughs) I've come to believe that she is completely the opposite of who we think Mm. and doesn't deserve the scorn and ridicule that we have attributed to her. We've cast upon her over the millennia, really. I can't wait to get into that. I can't either. But continuing on the story, at this point, the friends start showing up, the infamous friends. Yeah. And they're... Pretty soon, they're berating him with some pretty terrible truths. They are. But you've said that Job was a very good man. He's God's number one man. That's that's the language you use. What, I mean, these are his friends. I, I've i always had the assumption that they come because they care about him and they love him and they know him. Yep. And I would know these things that we have documented about Job. Why, why do they give him such a hard time? I love the way you phrase that question. And everything you said about them is true, and we'll see that in chapter two. I mean, it's literally spelled out in chapter two. But here's the problem. And you know, Heath, only God could set this up. I mean, the setup of this is perfect (laughs) to achieve the result that this book achieves and to create the environment and the whole dynamic between these men that, that fulfills what God wanted to bring about in this dialogue. So here's the problem that the friends have. They have this theology, which we talked about, I think, maybe a couple sessions ago, Mm -hmm. which is if you do what is right, you'll be blessed. If you do what is wrong, you'll be cursed. If you sin, you'll be cursed. It's very narrow. It's not incorrect, but it's incomplete. It does explain some suffering. Mm -hmm. It does not explain all suffering. But to them, it was all they knew. And by the way, they're probably all Edomites. At least we're positive that Eliphaz was an Edomite. Yeah. And they're not godless. They're not godless people. They do understand many things about God. And they they attribute wonderful characteristics to him in their speeches in the book. Mm. And a lot of it is accurate. But they've got him in a box. And so they see their friend. And, and let's get the picture here. They show up. They've heard about what happened. But they show up. They see a man that's so disfigured, the text tells us they couldn't recognize him. Wow. So from a distance, right, they know it's him. Like they've heard about the circumstances, they kind of know where to find him. They know, obviously, that that's him, but he's so disfigured that this man who's familiar to them is not recognizable. Mm. And so what can they conclude except that he's done something really awful? He's a train wreck. They've never seen anyone so cursed in their whole life. Obviously, he must have done something terrible. Yeah. And it all springs from this theology that's not – it's not wrong theology, but it, it is not applicable here. Or I like – use the word it's incomplete. It's too. incomplete. Yeah. The theology that the, the reasons for Job's suffering are not his own sin. So Job – in these these conversations, and there's seven rounds of these, right? Is that what you said? There's seven yeah. rounds, and then they throw in the towel. The eighth speech, which is by Bildad, they basically say, we give up. Yeah, but Job pretty much tells them they're awful friends, oh, yes. right? Yes, he does. <laughs> and aren't they? I mean, I don't know. What, what do you think? Here's, here's what I would say. Okay. They say awful things. Yeah. But they're actually fantastic friends. Like, I would hope mm. to be this good of a friend – if I had someone who was really in need in many, many ways. So I'm going to bounce back over to chapter 2. Okay. In chapter 2, verses 11, 12, and 13 are packed 
It's a very compact little part of the passage. And we think they're awful friends, and they do say awful things. And we think they're awful friends because of the volume of the chapters of this dialogue. Yes. I mean, it basically makes up uh, chapters four, where the friends first respond, through chapter 25, where they where they throw in the towel. All that is this dialogue back and forth, and, and it's, it's more than half of the book's chapters, basically. Yeah. But chapter two, verses 11, 12, and 13 are just critical. So it says in 11, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come on him, they each came from his own place. So let's stop there. They would have heard about this from messengers. I mean, there was no newspaper. There was no internet. There wasn't any telephone. Somebody traveled through one of their towns and, and they heard the scuttlebutt. Did you hear what happened yeah. to this guy? I mean, yeah. he was so well off and all, he's, he's really in this bad shape. This is a significant tragedy that has made it, – it, the news it's has traveled. News. That's exactly That's right. right. He, it's news of the day as, as news would travel yeah. then. So think about this. These three guys each live in a different place. They're sending messengers back and forth saying, have you heard this? You know, what's going on? Now, if we heard that someone was really in bad shape in the hospital here, it's easy. We could be there in 15 minutes, right, yeah, and go yeah. see them. Even so, maybe you and I would say, hey, you know, our friend is in the hospital. Maybe one of us is, well, I can go up there today and I'll let you know how he's doing. Yep. And then maybe you would go. These guys didn't even do that. They Just from what they heard, they said to themselves by messenger – we need to all go together. Yep. We need to make a time and we need to all show up together. Yeah. There wasn't any cell phones to do this. There wasn't any, can you meet for lunch Tuesday? No, I got to, can we do it Thursday? It was messengers and they had to set affairs in order and get people to take care of their business while they were gone. They meet together. And by the way, all this was some months after these things happened to Job, at least two months. We're not really sure how long. Could have been a year. Could have been half a year. So 2.11 says they each came from their own place. And they made an appointment together to come. So that's a big deal, just mm. the logistics of that. But the next words are to sympathize with him and comfort him. The author in the inspired word of God is telling us these guys came to sympathize with and to comfort him. Yeah. So that was the intent of their hearts when they came. Then it says when they lifted up their eyes from a distance, so they show up. And they didn't recognize him. So again, he's so disfigured. They know it's him, but they can't even recognize him. They wouldn't have recognized him except that they knew what happened. It says they raised their voices and wept, and they each tore his robe and sprinkled dust on their heads toward the sky. Does that sound like bad friends to you? No. It doesn't sound like bad friends to me at all. No. And then it says they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. Now, Heath, I do something now that's different at this point in the class than I did when you when you sat through it a few years ago. I asked people in the class, if I was standing up here and I just stopped talking for one minute, what would that be like? And then I stopped talking for one minute. It's pretty awkward. It's very awkward. <laughs> one minute. And I, I tell them, I hope that that minute was the longest minute in the class, right? <laughs> <laughs> I hope it was. But it's extremely awkward. And I don't, I don't give any other intro to it than that. Now, I won't do that on the podcast because if I don't want someone to turn us off. But <laughs> if I just stopped talking here for a minute, it'd be awful. I would, I would, I'd go clip it. <laughs> <laughs> you'd clip it. I'd go, see, that was a long minute. You'd go, well, not really anymore. That was, Imagine. I, I was able to take care of that. So Job's friends sat with him, if you do the simple math on this, for 10,000 minutes oh. and didn't say anything. Okay, so, I mean, just, you know, seven days, 
times 24 hours a day times 60 minutes an hour is about 10,000 minutes. I don't even know anybody that could do that. No. <laughs> now, we have, to, we have to understand, it doesn't say that they didn't speak. They didn't say anything to Job. Okay. I'm sure that they got up and ate and relieved themselves and got something to drink and then came back and sat down, and I'm sure they went to sleep at night. And I imagine there was lots of whispering going on and okay. hushed, hushed talk amongst each other, like, oh, my gosh, this is a lot worse than we thought, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But the text is very clear. No one said a word to Job for seven days and seven nights, so 10,000 minutes. Wow. Now, how bad of friends were these? Well, I, changing my mind a little. I mean, the, these, these, these were terrific friends. And yeah. keep in mind, by this point, Job has been ostracized by everybody in the yeah. region and the town where he lives. Yeah. So these guys show up and they don't do that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you, I think this is the best day and the best week Job has had in a very, very long time since wow. this whole ordeal began. And at some point, they do start to speak and we have these rounds. Yep. This is 21 chapters. This is a lot of dialogue. That's and right. A lot of content. How is this? And they're not in agreement. Right. But how does this get resolved between them? So let me, let me point out first that Job breaks the silence. Okay. So after Job the seven the days, okay. Job speaks first and he speaks in chapter three and he's very artful in chapter three. So what he says is basically, I wish I was dead, but he does that three ways. Okay. In the first few verses, he says, I wish I had never been conceived. He mm. says, I wish the night on which it was said a boy has been conceived just would be expunged from the record books. In essence, he says, I wish I'd never even existed, mm. like it never had been even the sperm and the egg. Then he goes on to say, having been conceived, basically having been conceived, I wish I had been stillborn. I wish I had come out of the mm. womb dead already. And basically, since those two things haven't been the case, I wish I could just die right now. I yearn for death. It would be better than this. Interestingly, the thought that he might take his own life never enters the text. It never enters the conversation. So there's yeah. no thought of that. Yeah. But he does wish that he could just die right now. So he breaks the silence. And there's some, from what I've read, it uh, strongly suggests that in the case of suffering, it was sort of customary to wait for the person who was suffering to speak first. Okay. So that may explain the very long time. If Job simply didn't say anything for seven days, and he probably took huge comfort from the fact these three guys were just there yeah. comforting him and sympathizing with him, then he finally breaks the silence. Huh. Now, your question was, how does this get resolved? Between them, it doesn't. It doesn't. Neither side budges. Remember, the essence of what they say is the friends say, you must have done something terrible. No, I didn't. Oops, no, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, <laughs> no I didn't. didn't. It doesn't get resolved. No, By the but end you of really it. must have done something. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And what does happen is the whole thing devolves into just terrible mudslinging back and forth. Wow. So Job tells his friends that they're terrible friends. One of my favorite things is he says, if you would just keep your mouth shut for you, that would be wisdom. He says, <laughs> you know, you guys are so full of hot air. If you just shut up, that would be better than saying There's anything. There's some classic insults in here. Yes. That. <laughs> and that ties right into the proverb uh, where it says, even a fool is thought wise if he keeps his mouth shut. <laughs> so, and then the friends, even they get to the point of accusing him of ripping the shirts off the back of poor people and, and crushing the arms of orphans. I mean, it, it gets completely out of hand, completely mm. ridiculous. But I would even say this, Heath, it's really important to note that the three friends, four different times in their seven speeches, not counting the last one that's very different, 
four different times, they plead with Job, they implore him that if he'll just get right with God, he'll be restored and his life will be even better than it was before. So Mm. even amidst all the tension and all the mudslinging and all the false accusations, which these guys, you know, sort of erode into, their hearts are still yearning for him to be restored. Now, what we have to understand is we can't confuse the fact that they're really good friends, but at the same time, they're so totally wrong. Mm. They couldn't be more wrong. They're exactly the opposite. They think he's got some huge sin. They have no idea that he's actually, in fact, God's number one man of anybody on the earth, including them. And all of this springs from their erroneous, erroneous, incomplete theology. And again, it's not wrong in every case, but it's not applicable here. And so it's incomplete and it's, their view is way too narrow. Hmm. All right. The next part, somebody else is going to enter the scene. Mm-hmm. We're going to save that for next week. Good. Sounds good. All right. Looking forward to it. Thank you all for joining us. I know you're having as much fun as I am. <laughs> Listen to Scott's deep love for this book, and it's been so enlightening. Thank you, Scott. You bet. I'm happy to be here. All right. I'll see you next week. Thanks for joining Fellowship Around the Table. To check out more, visit fbctulsa.org.